Today we're starting a short series on living generously and confronting the things that get us stuck. You ever felt stuck in life? Facing something that you just feel like you can't move on, that you're stuck? I want to start off by looking at two obstacles. Two things that we can get stuck in that prevent us from really growing and maturing in our ability to be outrageous givers. Generous with our time. Generous with our resources. Are you a generous person? The first one has to do with motivation. You know, I think that some of us have gotten stuck due to some poor motivation when it comes to the subject of giving. And in order to discuss that, I've got to talk about everybody's favorite word. You know what it is? Tithing. Are you understanding why I'm... Because that's about the time people start doing this, right? Tithing. If you come from a more traditional background, I'm sure you've heard this probably maybe more than you care to. It's a biblical principle that says that every Christian should give 10% of their income to the church. 10%. Doesn't matter how much you make, doesn't matter where you're at in life, 10%. That's the way this goes. And if you don't give that 10%, it says you're, you're robbing God. That's pretty heavy. How many of you have heard sermons about robbing God? Really? How many of you have heard sermons about robbing God? Tithing and all of that. Okay. I think that's a lot of us. So here's how you rob God. It says in Malachi 3.8, you guys know the verse, will anyone rob God? In other words, would any of you be so dumb as to rob God? Then he says, yet you are robbing me. And you ask, how are we robbing you? And then God says, in your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, I can remember hearing sermon after sermon after sermon about this so clearly. I am a Nazarene preacher's kid. I heard it a lot. It goes something like this. The Bible says to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, right? Not a part, not a portion, not a fraction of your tithe, the full tithe. And if you're not bringing the full tithe and you're only giving 7% or 5% or whatever, you're robbing God. Sound familiar? And scripture goes on to say that if you don't bring the full tithe, that means there's a curse that will be on you and on your nation. Have you sat through a sermon or two like this? Now, you don't need to know right up, here's what you need to know right up front. I'm a believer in the biblical concept of tithing, giving 10% of your income. Here's what I'm not a fan of the usual motivation that's used for us to follow it. Now, like I said, I am a third-generation Nazarene, so I've heard an awful lot about this and the motivation for doing it. You see, I would love it if everyone committed 10% of their income to MP Naz. If we did, we'd never have to worry about a single bill being paid ever again, right? There's enough people here that that's what would happen. But I don't want anyone's motivation to be that there's an Old Testament law that said you better do it or God's going to zap you. Okay? That's my heart. That's not New Testament motivation. And in the New Testament, motivation is literally everything. Why you do what you do, it's everything. So I'm not a fan of the God's going to get you motivation of tithing. I think it really hinders people because there's a world of difference between doing something out of a love relationship and doing something out of fear or obligation. So here's the situation. The tithe in ancient Israel was a third of their tax. They had to give 30% of their income to the authorities, and a third of that, 10%, went to the temple fund 
to fund the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. That's what the tithe was for. So in today's world, that 10% is brought into the storehouse, the place where you go to worship, where you go to be disciple, where you go to serve, where you go to fellowship. Paul tells us that the law was given for a purpose. It was needed at that point in time to drive us or to lead us to Christ. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3.24. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. See, when it comes to the Old Testament law, the understanding is that you're justified by compliance, by your behavior. And according to Paul, one of the primary purposes of the law was to be a guardian, to help lead us to Christ, to help show us that we have a need for a Savior. And what Jesus came to show us was the impossibility of perfectly complying with the old law. And therefore, the possibility of being rightly related to God on that basis. See, Paul says that the Old Testament law exposes sin. It intensifies sin. But in doing so, it points us to Jesus because it shows us that we need a Savior. And now that the Savior has come, and now that we know the Savior, we don't do things with the same motivation that people did when they were under the law. I hope you're following me. So the law, as good as it was, is no longer our motivation Because the reason God put his spirit in our hearts and written his own law on our hearts is that he calls us to be motivated by an internal drive of the love of Jesus, not a fear of God zapping us. You follow me? I hope so. And so our motivation isn't being done from an external pressure type of thing. Instead, it comes from an internal desire, a desire, a compelling that's on the inside of us. See, I believe that the 10% plan is actually more of a starting place. It's a jumping off point. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9? 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6, going through verse 8, and would you stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6, going through verse 8. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church here about taking up an offering. And this is what he says. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. I think we just heard that a little bit. Right, Matt? And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You may be seated. Now, Paul doesn't go into required percentages here. He's basically saying, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep on praying about it. And that's what I would tell you. I need you to keep on praying about it. Let God speak to your heart about this. This is between you and him. The point is, you need to keep praying about it. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. It's God's economy. This is God's economic plan for us. You see, God wants to bless you. But here's the thing. God doesn't bless you simply to bless you. It's so you can be a blessing to others. And the more you learn how to bless others, the more he's going to bless you. So you can go and bless others again. And on and on and on it goes. That's God's economy. Sooner or later, everything you pour out, everything you give away, everything you sacrifice comes back on you. That's the promise of God. In fact, it comes back to you tenfold or a hundredfold. What's it say? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It overflows. You can never outgive God. 
I, I, I have what I call Cecilisms. Cecil is my father. And this is one of the things that he said all the time. You can never, ever outgive God. God will always outgive you. Maybe not in the short run or even financially, but you'll never be able to outgive God, ever. Talk to anyone who's learned the joy of giving. You ever met someone like that? And they are fun to be around. Someone who's learned the joy of blessing others, and they'll tell you that when you bless others and you stretch yourself to the edge of what you think you're capable of, simply to bless others, it comes back to you in a million different ways. You see, there's joy in giving. It's one of the greatest joys to be found when you choose, and it is a choice, to live that way. And it creates in you this desire to be outrageously generous. It's what Paul's driving at when he talks about our motivation to give in verse 7, right? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul lays out the kingdom's economic plan to us, trying to get us to understand that the purpose of God blessing us isn't simply for us to enjoy it, but to also be a blessing to others. See, this concept of sharing, it's built into the DNA of God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom, it reflects God, and what, God, what is God all about? He's all about sharing. So this concept of sharing, it's hardwired into the very nature of God's kingdom. And Paul's telling us that everyone has to make up their own mind about this. This is a you and God type thing going on here. And it has to be done not out of compulsion, but as you made up your mind after listening to God. That's why prayer is so important, amen? It means that in God's kingdom, the motivation comes from God's heart to ours. See, it's not my job as your pastor to try to twist your arm or to try to shame you or persuade you or manipulate you into giving more. Not my job. Manipulation is not of God. Conniving is not of God. Pressure and shame is not of God. What is of God is saying, talk to God about it and then give accordingly. Let God be your motivation. That's the way the kingdom does it. Why? Because God loves cheerful giver. No conniving, no pressure, no manipulation. It's simply between you and God. And the fact that Paul says that you have to make up your own mind, please hear me on this. It means you have to make up your own mind. This isn't difficult. It's not just going to happen automatically for you. You've got to put some thought into this. You have to resolve in your own heart, how does God want me to steward his resources? It means that you have to plan for it. You can't just let it happen. You have to make up your mind. And what that means is that you're thinking about it. You're scheduling it in. You're budgeting it in. It means that you're not waiting to the last minute and checking the calendar and saying, oh man, I only got two bucks left. I guess I'll give that. Whatever else it means to seek first the kingdom of God, it's got to at least mean that we don't give God our leftovers. Amen? Something, if something's important to you, you know how this goes. You'll plan for it. You'll budget for it. You'll structure it in such a way that you have the money to cover it, right? It's about your priorities. So if we're called to seek first the kingdom of God, this should be really, really high, if not the highest on your priority list. And the question we go to God with is simply this, how would you like me to steward your resources? Will you help me? See, God wants a cheerful giver, not a reluctant one. And by the way, cheerful, it doesn't mean that it won't hurt. 
Any kind of kingdom giving is probably going to pinch a little. It's going to hurt a little. Because the kingdom starts, the kingdom always reflects Calvary, right? And it begins with that first drop of blood. It's all about self-sacrifice. You probably have to adjust your life a little bit. And maybe even say no to some of those things that you really, really would have liked to have had. There's going to be some self-denial involved here because it's the very definition of the kingdom. But the reason that you're doing it isn't because there's a rule over your head that tells you you're supposed to. You do it because it's in your heart. You do it because you see the beauty of who Jesus is and the beauty of what he's doing in your life. And you want in, right? Remember, that 10% principle, it's there as a starting point, a guideline to help you get started. Tithes and offerings. And when you surrender your life to Christ, the Spirit of God is literally pulling you in that direction. And there's a yes in your heart that's there now. It's, it's like a compelling force deep in your heart, deep in your soul. You see, in the kingdom, our giving, it's got to be motivated by the internal work of the Holy Spirit. What he's doing in your heart, not some external pressure that's forcing you to do it. Because external pressure, you know this, only works for so long. When scripture talks about giving, it talks about joy. It talks about fullness. It talks about the opportunity. It talks about it being a privilege, right? It's not a got-to thing. It's a get-to thing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that it's the love of Christ that compels us. There's this compelling that's going on here. There's an obligation that's there, but it's not by someone outside you. It's the Spirit literally pulling you in that direction. Have you ever experienced that? And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. See, Paul sees the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And he says, you know what? I want in on that. I want to be a co-partner that helps beautify the world through Jesus Christ. And the love that Paul saw, the beauty that he saw, it pulled him in that direction where he was willing to sacrifice literally everything. Paul, he, he just kind of gave it all away. And what did he say? He said he counted it all as joy. And it moved him in the direction of being a cheerful giver. You see, in the kingdom, our motivation is love, not fear. It's joy, not threats. We're motivated by, motivated by a get-to, not a got-to. As Christ followers, we get to. We're invited to be a part of it. God literally invites us to be poured out towards him. See, we've got to be able to see giving in a new light. Because when you're giving and you think you've got to, what does it do? It sucks the joy right out of your get-to. If it's a got-to that pops in your head around the idea of giving, and that's where a lot of us are, if we're honest, when it comes to money, then it's going to rob you of your ability to experience the joy of learning how to give. There's a world of difference between those two things because it only takes a little got-to to completely ruin a get-to. It's like when I'm at home. When I happen to notice that there's a bunch of dishes in the sink, and they need rinsed off and put in the dishwasher, and I start to think, you know, Scott, I should probably clean up those dishes without Tiffany having to ask me. You know what? That would surprise her. That'd make her really happy. She'd realize what a great husband I am. I'll have I've scored some points. That'll be fun. 
But just as I'm getting ready to do it, she comes around the corner and asks me to do it. It's like, seriously? I wanted to surprise you, and then, you have, and then you'd have all these great thoughts about me, but now I have to do it because you just told me to do it. Get to versus got to, right? You see, the got to do sucks the joy right out of the get to do. You can't have it both ways, got to do and get to do. It's one or the other. See, one of the reasons why grace and law are so opposite is because the law is all about what you got to do. And grace is all about what you get to do. I love grace. (laughs) It only takes one got to do to ruin a get to do. Folks, in God's kingdom, we get to do this. We're invited. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Have you ever let that sink in? We say that phrase so much that I think we just, it just becomes rote to us. We don't think about it. We get to pull our resources and we get to sacrifice together to see God do beautiful things through us individually and us as a church. That's not a got to do, that's a get to do. We get to change lives. How many people get to say that? We get to make an eternal difference on what happens. Kingdom business, every action that's in line with the cross causes a ripple effect that goes on throughout eternity. We don't think about it that way, do we? We get to have a life that matters, that makes an eternal difference. We get to have a purpose in life. This is what gives our life meaning. We get to partner with God. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus who feed the hungry, who help the homeless and provide a place to to worship for people who didn't have a place to go. We get to do that. What a privilege. It's not a got to do type thing. That's, That's an amazing opportunity. See, there's freedom and joy in knowing the beauty of God and knowing the incredible stuff that God's doing in the world and in knowing that we get to, get to be invited to come and be a part of that with him. God calls us his co-workers. God calls us his co-workers. He gives us that distinction. Folks, our lives count. And that isn't a got-to thing, that's a get-to thing. But that got-to mindset, man, it's hard to shake, isn't it? We're born into it. And if you're still operating under that got-to mindset, I can understand why. Because in our country, in America, we're systematically conditioned to connect money with got-to. Right? We're told that the only reason we should ever let go of some of our money, according to our culture, is because we got to do it. I need a car, so I got to spend that money. I need an apartment, so I got to spend this money. I need new clothes, I got to spend that money. I got to, I got to, I got to, right? but you only give up money when you have to. That's how we're conditioned. And you definitely don't want to give up more than you have to, right? You want to hang on to as much as possible. That's the fundamental message of our culture. So when we start thinking about giving in the church, our mind can instantly go to that got-to mentality. Okay, the basket's being passed. The plates are being passed. I guess I got to give something. I just walked by the tithe box by the door. I, I, I got to give something or... You see the slide about the online giving? I guess I better take care of that. I got to do it. It gets filed under a got to instead of a get to. So it gets filed under, I guess I better do that instead of this is awesome. I get to do this. And it's an automatic thing. 
We're not trying to have that reaction. It's just how we're conditioned. So are you in the got-to camp or are you in the get-to camp? If you're not... If you're in the got-to camp, I imagine you've probably got a picture in your head that's, just, that's of God that's just waiting to blast you for not giving your 10% or for stealing from his storehouse. That's you if you're in the got-to camp. You've got a picture of God in your head that's trying to get you to do something on the basis of a threat instead of an opportunity. But if you start seeing the true God who is fully revealed in Jesus Christ crucified... You'll see the God of opportunity. you see the good and beautiful God as revealed to us as Jesus on the cross. See, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. It was the joy set before him. And even as hard as that was to do, he did it out of joy, not of, out of some sort of obligation. Because, you see, it's only when you're free of the got-to mindset that you're able to truly embrace the get-to mindset and discover the joy of giving, which is the deepest joy, I think, this side of heaven. All right, so that was point number one. Now a little more quickly, point two, I promise. This one's huge, and we often get stuck in it. As Christ followers, God's kingdom has more authority in our life, has absolute authority in our life, not the culture that we live in. Do you believe that? You see, where we get stuck is when we think that we own things. Listen to what Jesus says here in Luke 14, 25 to 27. This is so essential to our faith. If you get this, it will help you. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's heavy. And Jesus sums it all up a few verses later when he, when he says in Luke 14, 33, so therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Woof. Now, I imagine the crowd probably reacted to Jesus pretty much the way you just reacted, right? So here's Jesus and there's this large crowd and word gets out about how Jesus is healing people and he's freeing people. Everyone wants in on this action. So the big crowd follows Jesus all the while patting him on the back, yelling a few, hosannas, hosannas. And, and Jesus starts to see this and apparently thinks, you know what, time to thin the crowd out a little bit. So Jesus stops and yells, hey, everyone, hope you're having a wonderful day, having a good time, but here's what you need to know. If you want to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. You got to hate your mother. You got to hate your father, your wife and children and everything for my sake. Are you good with that? Hmm. Now, most Jews would probably realize that Jesus was using just a little bit of hyperbole here. That Jesus was exaggerating a little bit to make a point. I mean, Jesus isn't literally telling people to ignore the commandment about loving your mom and dad. He's just saying that in order to follow him, your allegiance to him and God's kingdom, it has to dwarf in significance every other allegiance you've got. Your allegiance to the kingdom should be so stark. It's like the difference between love and hate. We need to understand that following Jesus means he has priority over everything. And yes, I mean everything. But that's not a very popular message now, is it? Especially the way Jesus taught it here. And then Jesus takes it up another notch and tells them, take up your cross. Which everyone in the first century knew with 100% certainty that that was an execution device. It's not that little piece of jewelry of the 21st century that's like some sort of an accessory. 
This was a guillotine. This was an electric chair. This was a death symbol. Take up your cross. You got to be willing to face death, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me. Pretty heavy. Have you ever wondered how Jesus had all these huge crowds, all this huge success, a huge following, and say stuff like that? If you didn't know anybody, you think that Jesus was somehow this smooth talker, that he knew how to work the crowd like a smooth politician, that he knew how to win friends and influence people. But just listen to what Jesus said to the crowds. Go let the dead bury the dead. Hate your mom and dad. You can't be my disciples. Take up your cross. Lose all your possessions. Not exactly a popular message. And by the way, what does that even mean, lose all your possessions, give up all your possessions? What does that mean for us? You ever ask yourself that? Well, it means exactly what it says, give up all your possessions. There's no loophole here. I checked the Greek, couldn't find any way out of it. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus and his disciples, they had some possessions, right? They had clothes to wear. Some of them had satchels. Some of them had staffs. Some of them even carried a sword. At times, they'd go back to their houses. They'd even keep their, their boats and their fishing nets because when they went back to fishing when Jesus was crucified, right? So they had stuff. And Jesus often stayed at people's houses, and when they prepared a meal and the food was served, not once did Jesus ever tell them that they shouldn't have any of that. So apparently, not owning stuff, not possessing it, is not the same as having stuff, all right? They're two different things. You can have stuff, but Jesus is saying, don't see it as yours. Don't call it mine. Don't put that label on it. You can enjoy stuff, but don't think of it as yours. Hmm. And that flies in the face of us as Americans, doesn't it? But do you know why that is? It's because when we're fully surrendered to Jesus, our whole self is completely surrendered to Jesus. And that means that everything we have and everything we own has to be surrendered to Jesus as well. Which also means that we don't really own any of it. It's all God's. So whatever house God allows you to enjoy, that's great. But know this. Not your house. It's God's. That nice car you got or two cars, a motorcycle, RV, or boat, that's great. But know this, it's not your car, not your bike, not your RV, not your boat. It's God's. All those shoes you love, uh uh-oh, pastor's meddling now. Those are God's too. All the clothes you wear, that actually belongs to God too. Every advantage that you have, everything you're good at doing, even that belongs to God because he's the one who gave it to you. John tells us there's nothing that we didn't receive from God, which is why bragging about our stuff is so dumb. Because you didn't do anything to earn it. You just got blessed with it, so you should be grateful and not boastful about it. Everything we have is received. And what God wants is for us to acknowledge that and give it back to him and submit it under his lordship. Mm. Even your health, even your family, even your loved ones, absolutely, you should absolutely enjoy them, but don't cling to them. Don't cling to them. They're not yours to possess. See, there's too much at stake in all of this because this was never God's design. We're not supposed to have our identity wrapped up in the stuff that we think that we own. All of our identity, all of our needs are supposed to be met in one place, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if we have him, then we got everything we need, right? 
So everything we do is supposed to come out of the center of that. The last thing we should be doing is identifying with or placing our identity in the things that we have around us. That is a life-sucking, life-destroying plan, and it's unnatural because it was never supposed to be that way. See, this whole idea of mine is the source of all of our anxiety, or at least almost all of our anxiety in our world. Because all the anxiety about what's yours or what you might lose and what you need to have and all those types of questions, all of it creates anxiety. Think about it. This whole concept of mine is the source of most of the conflicts in our world. All you got to do is look at Israel right now. When I say it's mine, I'm saying it's not yours. And when you say it's yours, you're saying it's not mine. And what really complicates things is we all have these competing interests and sometimes we both want the same thing. And then we collide over that. And now we got problems. And if I identify with just my country or my political party or my political ideology and my party or my ideology or whatever it is you're identifying with, if it stands against others, we've got problems. All because we're finding our identity in things and not in God. See, Jesus cuts the root of all of this idolatry. This thing that's behind all the violence and all the wars and all the ugliness and all of the jealousy. Think about it. When you're jealous or envious or clingy over something, it's usually because you think it's mine. And your minds are being threatened or you want more of mine. And this is the root of all the evil that afflicts our world as it spins round and round and round. See, the change that Jesus brings to all of this, the message that he brings to this is not how much of what you have should you give to God. If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong one because you're already thinking with a got-to mentality, right? You see, Jesus reframes the whole question when he tells us to have no possessions because what he's saying is it all belongs to him anyway. We're never allowed to cling to it. And the reason that Jesus does that is not just for the sake of the kingdom. It's because this is what will set you free. When you cling to something, it clings to you. You think you own it, but it actually owns you. The last word I want to say to you about this is that some of us really, really struggle with this. I know that. It's crucial that we submit everything to God. And if God says, I want you to enjoy it, then enjoy it, please. Now, you have to be really honest with yourself as you seek to discern God's will about all the stuff that you think you own. The stuff that belongs to him that he's letting you steward for him. Because the whole goal is for us to surrender it back to him. That's the goal of this whole thing. Surrender it back to God. The most important thing that we need to be doing that we're called to do, that we're empowered to do, is to take all our blessings, whatever we have, all the advantages we have, whatever resources we have, whatever bank accounts, whatever possessions we have, and to submit them to God and then follow his lead. Man, is that hard to do. Would you do me a favor and just kind of close your eyes for just a moment? Sometimes just closing your eyes and blocking everything else out will help you to focus on what God's saying to you this morning. I want to lead you through just a little exercise that I think would be beneficial for us to do often on our own because we so easily get attached to our stuff. 
So as your eyes are closed, I want you to open your hands, palm side up. Hold them out in front of you, just in your lap, whatever. Open your hands, palm side up. This has been so helpful to me over the years. With open hands, I want you to imagine right now where you live. A house, apartment, mobile home, whatever it is. Remind yourself that God allows you to enjoy it, but it's not yours. Your car, whatever you're driving, imagine it and say to yourself, it's not mine, it's yours. Turn it over to God. Your bank account, it's not mine, it's yours. Release it to him. The clothes you wear, the food you eat, you can enjoy it, but it's not yours. Let it go. Give it back to him. Your health, your mind, your talent, your skills, your reputation, your character, the way people see you, it's not yours. It belongs to him. Everything about you belongs to him. Surrender it. Release it back to him. Even your loved ones. Given to you on loan from God. Enjoy them. Absolutely love them. But you can't cling to them. They're not yours. Surrender your loved ones back to God. See, it's only through the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ going to the cross for us, dying and rising again, that we have a hope for the future. And we have a hope for eternal life. It literally is the ultimate example of outrageous generosity. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to live as disciples who have surrendered our lives to you, who cling to nothing except for you, who run to nothing except for you. We look to you for what we need the most in our lives. We get our life from you, Lord. We know that. And we need to learn to let it go. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give us and for giving us the opportunity and the privilege and the get-to of serving others. Thank you for your ultimate example of radical generosity, dying on the cross for our sins. Father, would you help us to always be faithful to that so we can be the beacons to our world of your self-sacrificial love that they so desperately need. We pray all this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Would you stand as we close in the song?